While I'm getting set up, you can turn to Genesis chapter 1. I wanted to spend just a moment thanking everyone for their hospitality and um, it's making me the center of your attention at your at your meals. Um, I don't I don't want to be arrogant about it, but it is it is nice to have so many people asking questions about you and wanting to get to know you. And all the food has been good, and the conversation has been very enjoyable. So I want to thank everybody again for having me. Um, for those uh, who are from other congregations or visiting and, and are not aware of the topic that we are dealing with this week, it has to do uh, with the way that we think about Jesus' response to us. That's one way to say it. Um, I try to think often as I'm learning more about Jesus, how does he speak? What does his tone of voice sound like in a given situation? What mannerisms, what facial expressions and body language might he have? And I am not given all of that in Scripture. And so as a person begins first reading the Bible and they read stories, especially in the Gospels, and it will say, and he said, we don't know exactly how he said the thing that he said. And I think as we grow in Christ, uh, we will learn that more, but it's kind of, for the rest of our lives, we're learning that. Um, I want to know how he would speak in this given situation because if I'm in a similar situation, I want to be able to speak like that or, or the way he would have me to speak. And we started Sunday morning by talking about Adam and Eve hiding in the trees in the Garden of Eden. And the reason that we did that is because when I read that story, I wonder to myself, what were they thinking? They're afraid. I know that they realized they were naked and they were ashamed and hid themselves. But I do wonder, and, and I cannot guarantee any of the thoughts they had, but I do wonder what kind of other fears maybe they could have had at the time. And I compare that to the kind of fears that I have in the presence of God when I consider my relationship with Him. There are times where I feel like God would be very angry with me. There are times where I'm very much wrong about the way he would think. And the, one of the examples that I gave yesterday was I try to, I mean the Bible doesn't call it this, but I try to take a prayer walk where I envision that Jesus is there walking with me around the neighborhood. Um, I know that he is actually with me, but I try to imagine, you know, if he, if he were standing here walking with me and I'm going to have a conversation with him. And at some point, Especially, I maybe am going to share with him something difficult, something that I've done wrong recently. What kind of fears may be going through my mind as I consider how is he going to respond? And certain people in that situation might think that, let's say they're taking that walk and they confess a particular sin to him. I bet I would get several different responses if I gave you an exact, all right, here's, here's the sin that you've committed and now you're about to tell Jesus this thing that you've done, what do you think he would say and how do you think he would say it? I think it'd be impossible for everybody here to give the same answer and I think different people would have a different personality of how Jesus would say it. And it's not our whole task to know those exact things, but the more that we reach for those things, I think the the better we can understand Jesus and the better we can respond to others. Some people taking that walk with Jesus, they may think 
that when they say, they tell him this big failure that they've had, that all of a sudden he's just going to look at them with disgust and say, I just can't believe you. And, and all of a sudden you get this feeling as if Jesus doesn't even want you nearby. And I, I wondered to myself, did Adam and Eve have any of those kind of thoughts? Maybe not immediately, but when they were cast out of the garden, I do wonder what uh, concerns they struggled with when they considered the way Jesus thinks about them. And so all this week, I'm trying to find ways in Scripture to to be more confident about the way Jesus would feel about me in each situation. And then I hope that that helps you as well. So we talked about that. And after we spent time doing that in the evening, we also talked about Jesus' relationship to the sinner and, and especially concerning forgiveness. We talked about Asaph's psalm in uh, Psalm 77, where he asks, is, is God ever going to be favorable again? Can I even be redeemed is the question. And I think when we examine stories like Manasseh and the thief, we found out that he can. Now, after that five-minute intro again, I hate to take that much time doing that, but, but I, I feel like maybe it's necessary um, for the newcomers here tonight. I, TJ, I skipped the, the lesson I told you we were going to do because there's another lesson I want to do Wednesday. And, and that brings us into our next topic, which is if, if I could just get near to Jesus. It has to do with uh, how we approach Him. And the reason I think that that's a good topic after our other two is because we've, we've talked a little bit about some of the positive ways that, that Jesus thinks about us. We have we've struggled with the ideas that, that Jesus is just wrathful and just angry and, and is so ashamed of me. And hopefully we have built up some confidence and then also know that not only um, does he actually have a lot of positive thoughts about me, but also he wants to forgive me and he wants to offer me something that's great. Something that is the greatest thing that can be, which is in his presence forever, where only good exists and no evil. So if those stories about Jesus draw me to him, if I start desiring, you know what, I want to know more about him, I want to get closer to him, I need to know how to approach him. Hebrews talks about approaching his throne of grace and confidence, but also I, I'm approaching him my whole life. I'm drawing nearer and nearer to Him until one day uh, I look forward to being with Him forever, directly there. And I think there are a few questions we have to ask ourselves. The one that I want to go through quickly, because I think we've already examined it a bit, is I need to understand who I am. Now, there's no way in, in a few minutes can any of us understand ourselves fully. I think it takes our whole life of examination but I want to compare the way the world views itself and how they try to persuade us to view ourselves and the way we really should view ourselves. If I were to ask you, how, does, how do individuals in the world who are separated from Christ often picture themselves? What do they think about themselves? One of the very first things that's going to come up is pride. People in the world design themselves in their own image. And they look out to the image of other people in the world to also try to take things that they like, the quality of this person, I want to adopt that and adopt that, but they oftentimes look at the wrong example. And, and so that, that results in a very prideful person, someone who 
pursues the desires of their own heart are what oftentimes uh, the world will call pursuing your, your dreams. And, and many times it comes at others' expense and people are okay with that. And the world is very competitive against one another. Also, people in the world will, if you'll remember, we talked about this in Bible class a little bit, uh, the relationship with Cain and Abel. The thing that Cain said to God when God asked him about Abel was, am I my brother's keeper? Am I accountable or responsible for him in any way? And, and the world kind of pushes away from that as well. You know, so you, you know, you don't, don't worry about everybody else. You focus on yourself. As long as you do that, you'll be fine. Oftentimes, they, they act like death is also not very much a thing. They, they, they tend to not fear it, or at least claim that they don't, saying there's nothing after this life. And ultimately, um, I don't think anybody would doubt that, that the world uh, runs away from morality. They, they are uh, very immoral. And so that is how worldly people view themselves. But how we are supposed to view ourselves, it does begin in Genesis chapter 1, where I had you turn, starting in verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then you'll talk about dominion over the things he's created. But just that phrase, in our image according to our likeness, I think that points back to the topic of our lesson. I'm trying to find out what Jesus thinks about me and the way that he would mold me and sculpt me to be the right person. And he's the perfect example of that. That's Far different from the world looking out at the people that they claim are great, successful people. And then they look at the story of humble Jesus and they don't want any of that. That's not a king. That's not power and strength. But this is exactly what God wants us to be. When he said, let us make man in our own image, it, it has to be pointing back to Jesus. What he was looking for is a man and a woman that would act like Jesus. And then, of course, Adam and Eve are deceived by Satan. Eve is deceived. Adam, Adam um, just willingly does this thing, and, and they sin, and they begin their journey of their own image, a battle between spirit and flesh that Paul talks about for us, I believe, in Corinthians. So I'm somebody that was made to be like God even though Satan attempted to deceive us and say, actually eating this fruit is what will make you like God. In Genesis chapter 3, and this also speaks to, to God's relationship to us again, is the fact that even though they were spiritually separated from God or had spiritually died for a time, God still spared them. Gave them an opportunity, even though the earth was cursed after that, gave them an opportunity to continue to pursue their marriage, children, and their relationship with God. And so I think that's something that's vital for us to understand too, is who I am. It's not just somebody that's supposed to be in the image of God, but I'm also somebody that was spared by God. When I did sin, God did not immediately enact the punishment that I deserved and spared me and was merciful. One other thing, and, and maybe Genesis 5 would remind us of this more than most, is, is something that the world often does not remind themselves of. If you go to Genesis chapter 5, 
There is a phrase in Genesis chapter 5 that will come up time and time again. Maybe you've heard this before. But a preacher reminded me of this a couple years ago. And he actually told me that this chapter had an effect on bringing someone to Christ. And you'd say, this is just a genealogy. What does that have to do with anything? But it was a phrase that that man kept hearing over and over again as chapter 5 of Genesis was read. And we won't read all of them, but we'll start in verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam in the day when God created man. He made him in the likeness of God. There it is again. I'm supposed to be like Jesus the best I can. He created them male and female and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness according to his image and named him Seth. Then the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. And it will talk about um, his sons and daughters. And then in verse 8 it will say all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. And then verse 11 will say, and he died. And over and over, this man heard that phrase and started thinking, you know what? Everybody that I look at in my life at some point has either passed away or will pass away. And you have to recognize that too. That's the sad part of the story. I know I'm going to pass from this life. And I've been spared by God. I'll only be spared for so long. So, so who am I? If I'm supposed to be like Jesus and I squander it throughout my whole life and act like the world instead, then where will I be? The next question I need to ask myself is, who is God? Which we spend the rest of our life trying to answer. While the world is telling us some of these things, that he is an imagination or a myth. Satan started by trying to make God out to be a liar. And I think it went deeper than that. It was, it was convincing Adam and Eve that God was trying to trick them. He actually had bad intentions, right? That's what Satan wants you to think. And the world will do that. If they cannot convince you that he is just never existed or does not exist, then they'll take the other route of trying to say, well, really, he's, he's not really in favor of you. And he doesn't actually care about what you're going through. And it's easy to think that when you're especially going through a tragic time in your life and you're praying and you don't hear a voice responding back to you and the bad things keep happening and maybe you can take that for a few weeks or a few months. If years go by, it's pretty easy to listen to the world say he really doesn't care what you're going through. And then they'll push it further. Not only does he not care, but he actually has a plan to harm you. And they paint him as just wrathful. If they, if they can't get you to believe that he doesn't exist, there's other ways to wear you down. Or he's finicky, changes his mind. One day he's nice, another day he doesn't want to have anything to do with you. The next day he's looking to harm you. You never really know. And we base it all on our feelings, how we're feeling that day. Maybe that's the way God feels about me. I think ultimately the point is, I think Satan's trying to convince us that God is evil. So that we would follow him instead. I don't get that from the Bible. Um, I get a lot of the opposite of that. Now, yes, I could. I could go 
cherry-picked stories from the Bible where something dangerous or, or destructive happened to somebody without reading anything else. And I can say, oh no, God's horrible. You don't really do that with any other book. You don't do that in a school assignment when you have to read a book. If, if, if you just bring up this one verse from one chapter and try to use that as your report, you failed. And, and, and we think we can do that with God's Word. We're not, we can't. At the beginning of God's Word, the very first thing is not, even though this is okay, it's okay to have a list of rules, that's not the first thing we get. We get an origin story of God and Him creating beautiful things. And, and we can suppose that the things that were created, many of them are far more beautiful than any of the creation that we've seen here because the only thing that we've seen here is a cursed creation. And so the first thing I see is, is God is, is somebody who really has the greatest imagination, if you will. He can create the most beautiful things that bring joy and pleasure, only good. In those first few verses, you get that in just the first five verses of Genesis. You also get in Genesis chapter 3, we kind of already touched on this, you get a very merciful God. If you're trying to convince me that God wants to harm me, it doesn't take long for me to study the Bible and realize he doesn't actually want to harm me at all. Typically, if you want to harm somebody, all you got to do is just not warn them of the danger to come. You'd think I was a pretty terrible father if my two-year-old daughter got out into the yard and then she started wandering to the street and I just said, hmm, well, look at that. There she is playing out in the road. And I just don't say anything to her. Uh, you probably would call the cops on me. I hope you would, or, or DHR, I hope you would do something. Um, but, but God, the first thing He does after He creates all this and tells them, hey, look, I have created this for you to have dominion, to rule over, this is yours. And He hadn't explained all of the things that were to come. We don't know what all beautiful designs He had for the future for Adam and Eve and their children. But I think that what we get in creation is enough to get us started on a path to convince ourselves that God is actually really good and that, and that even though they did the worst thing they could do there when they sinned, it, even then, he, met, he does. He makes clothing for them because they're afraid. They're naked and they're afraid. He makes clothing for them to take away some of that fear. And he does have to send them out into a cursed world, but remember the things that we said earlier. What were they still allowed to have? Anybody here married? Which, by the way, you don't have to be married to have joy, but anybody here married to, to a faithful Christian that loves God and loves you and loves your children? And while there are bad times, there's a lot of good. That is just one of the things that God allowed Adam and Eve to have even after they broke the covenant. He allowed them to have children. Children are a joy sometimes. Um, he allowed them to still plant gardens and build homes, design really anything that they wanted as long as it didn't harm somebody else. We just Sometimes we just fail to mention that part. And, and jump to Sodom and Gomorrah, which if you examine the story long enough, you realize God is actually still good in that story. In Genesis chapter 6, 
this is another story that some people will go to. I just don't understand how a loving God could destroy so many people. I, and I'll say this. I'm, I'm only 35 years old. I, I don't understand all of the reason behind it. I think I'm learning more. But here are some of the things I do know. In Genesis chapter 6, it's very clear from the first few verses that these people, they went their own way. As a Christian... God's wisdom tells you, you know, seek somebody out. I'm not saying it's a sin not to, to do this, but, but you want to seek somebody that also follows God and you can help each other get to God together. Help you to battle and overcome sin and, 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 and both of you go to heaven one day. Man didn't want to follow that anymore. So they choose it based on their own heart's desire. And I don't think the point, by the way, I don't think the point was, well, men saw pretty women and the world fell apart. I think the problem was, the point is, the people that they chose to be their spouse didn't care for God. They were worldly people. And, and the point of that is to show where their heart was at that point. The very first relationship other than man and God that he designed, the next thing was man and woman and, and man squandered that and went their own way, which showed that there was a deeper problem with their relationship with God. They didn't really have a relationship with God. And, and then the story just jumps. I don't know how long it took to get there, but at some point, they're so selfish and absorbed with wickedness. He says, he doesn't say every thought of their heart was evil. He says every intent of the thoughts of their heart. That's the root. That's the root. They are choosing to think evil thoughts. They're not having passing evil thoughts. They're reveling in them. And beyond that, it gets to a point where it says the world was covered in violence, which I don't know what that looks like. I see violence in the media. I've seen very few violent things face-to-face -face in my life, some, but not enough to compare a fraction of whatever must have been going on in Genesis. When it says the world was covered in violence, I don't know how much bloodshed was going on, but it sounds like about as much bloodshed as could possibly happen in the world. It was a bunch of murderers. It's scary. It's like just letting criminals run rampant everywhere. And at that point, you would think anybody else would say, I'm just done with this. And you're not going to look, you're not going to go around and look for the good. You're just going to say, here's all the wickedness, get rid of it. But God doesn't do that. God still finds the tiny remnant of people like Noah and his family. And it says, and he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And, and there's another point to who God is. God is someone that if there is a just... I want to use this out of context, but if there's a mustard seed of potential for good in a person or in a community, God will redeem what he can. And, and you've got to look for that. That's not what we often look for in Genesis 6, but that's what's going on. And even beyond that, just like our story with Manasseh, a person you would think, why would anybody try to redeem him? Why would anybody try to redeem all of these violent people that lived on the earth? God, to my understanding, gives Noah 120 years to try to bring them back. People that I wouldn't go after unless God had convinced me to. And so I can. there are a few more stories we'll go through, but at some point, the only way that you can convince yourself that God is not good 
is you have to always look the other way and basically blind yourself to the evidence that's right in front of you. It's, it's not just here. The, the scripture tells us that even by the things that are, uh, that, that are made, that his invisible attributes are clearly seen. I don't know how many of those attributes are clearly seen, but there's enough of them that I can look and see the beautiful creation and probably other human beings in front of me and recognize that there's some good here beyond my comprehension. And that, that community of people chose not to see it, given... What I, I don't understand God's time frame, but I do understand that that was an ample amount of time for them to repent. So Noah found grace. For the sake of time, I'll, I'll, I'll speed through some of these. I just wanted to touch, I just want to make a list. I want to have a list. I don't want, all right, here's one good story I remember about God. I want a list of them so I have an arsenal at my disposal when Satan's trying to convince me, yeah, but what about this? And I'll just say, all right, well, what about this? What about this good thing? And this good thing, at some point, there's too much good evidence about God for me to deny how good He is. If God just wants to harm man, then why does He pick Abram and offer him promises? The promises that He offered him, which not only have a physical component, but an even more important spiritual component. A a spiritual generation of descendants. And a spiritual land that He would go into. Not Canaan. But heaven, why would you offer to a sinful person, I have a place where evil cannot and does not exist and you can go there forever and only experience good feelings right beside me forever. I have not heard any other stories where a God does that. He later gives Abram and and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah gives them Isaac. And from that, generations of descendants. And so, if I really want to know who God is, I, I can find it. It starts with the things that I see, and then, and then I have to start making a pursuit after God if I want God. That's why, to me, some of these subjects are so important is because if people that have been out in the world long enough have heard so many terrible things about God, and they begin convincing themselves that there's no good... And so we have to go out there through our example and through our words and show, actually, God's not just good. He's, he's infinitely greater than you can understand. And the longer you'll walk with Him, the more you'll understand that. And, and, and for me, and I think for all of us, it even comes down to, I, you know, I would like to. When somebody asks me a particular question, I would love to know how Jesus would respond and the way He would say it. And even the look in His eyes and the concern in His face for their soul, how would He do that? And when, when an enemy slaps him in the face and spits on him, somebody does that to me. I'm not, I'm not by the way, I'm not justifying. I'm just, I'm saying if somebody did that to me, my first feelings, I, I, I'd grip my teeth, I'd be angry, and I would be thinking some evil thoughts about this person. I don't know how Jesus doesn't do that, but he doesn't. I don't know how you look at somebody that's doing that and still say, like, I really love you and I want to bring you to me. But He does. And that brings us in, into some of the other things. God, that, that, that just that example alone is beyond my comprehension. It kind of points to what Jesus said to Moses in Exodus 3 when He said, you know, it, well, what's your name so I can tell the children of Israel? That really, I mean, 
Is he supposed to just say one name and that describes all of the goodness that he is? He just says, I am. As far as I know, that at least tells me he's always existed. He's beyond what my finite mind can comprehend. And the goodness that he provides is also beyond that. And finally, in Leviticus 19, he will remind us of this many times, is that he is holy. And with that idea of holiness, I try to remind myself, because I feel like there have been times where the way somebody talked about holiness really all had to do with the fear aspect. You are supposed to fear God. And I don't, I don't believe just respect. I do believe that is a major component. You have to respect God. He is, he's terrifying in some ways. Not, not like he's a scary monster, but it is terrifying the power that he has over everything. I can barely control my own emotions or somebody's perspective or their thoughts. God can create things that I can't get anywhere close to. And he also has very dest- destructive power. But that's directed toward wickedness, which if we truly admit, the world does want that. The world oftentimes wants the same destruction that they claim God is misusing when they call out for justice. I'm not going to go to a a big side bar on that. I'm just going to say there are people that do certain things in this world that people of the world will say somebody needs to do something about that. And then when God does something about it, they say, oh, no, but that's not the thing. Or you did what we wanted to be done, but it shouldn't have been you that has done it. But with this holiness, I almost got off track with that. There's also, uh, it has to do with His purity, which points back to His goodness. When, When Moses is told to take sandals off of his feet, this is holy ground. I don't know what that phrase completely means. This is holy ground. If I asked you what holiness means, you know, sanctified, set apart, different, but there's something about it that God is beyond pure. God's goodness is, I can't understand it because I'm, I'm tainted with sin. And, and if I'm going to come into His presence and I'm going to bring something into His presence, what He's letting me know is like, you can only bring good in here. That's it. Nothing else. And I'm not going to change that. Because if I change that, then heaven doesn't become heaven anymore. I can't bring bad things in here and then still give you the promise that it's just good all the time and evil can't exist here. So I have to maintain that. And I have to come to an understanding that that's a good thing and that that is what I want. Do I want all of the evil gone? Okay, then I have to accept His holiness. That brings us into how he feels about me. We've talked about that some, but as a reminder before we get to the final point is I need to know how God feels about me. And I mean on an emotional level. I need lovey-dovey stuff. Not like a man and a woman, but I need to understand that God cares about me far more than I care about my wife and child. I need to know that. The reason I need to know that it's far more than my wife and child is because sometimes I get angry at Beth. I would say she rarely gets angry at me, but she probably does sometimes. And I get angry at my little toddler because I'm an impatient person at times. And I'm not always merciful. 
And if the only thing I can look to is my example or somebody else that's flawed their example and say, well, I guess there are times that God is just, you know, really sick of me. I'm not going to feel very confident about him. And if I start to think that he's just as impatient as I am and he gets just as angry at me as I do at other people, then I'm not going to feel very confident about my relationship with him. But thankfully, in his word, he has reminded me several times that he's a lot greater than that. And not in a condescending sort of way. He lets me know why I am the way that I am and the struggle that I'm going through, the spirit and the flesh. But he also lets me know that he's separated from that evil and always has been. And so since he's always been separated from evil and always will be, he's able to act in a much better way than I am. The world says that he's merciless, that he's busy with his own plans, that to him he's everything and we are worthless in his eyes. He enjoys confusing and harming me. It's almost like, I don't know if everybody will be familiar with this, but um, I watched a play many years ago, and there's a, it comes from a story, it's called The Monkey's Paw, where you, you can, with this object, you can wish a good thing that you want to happen, but there's always a downside. It's kind of like a, a genie that's tricking you. There'll be some good, there's going to be some bad that comes with it around the corner. That maybe he's like that. And that's going to put me on edge when I'm praying to him. I'm going to think there's something around the corner. He's not really, he doesn't have my best interest at heart. And that he hates me and finally he wants to punish me forever. And if Satan can trick you for the rest of your life, if you're willing to be tricked into thinking that really what God wants for you is bad, then you're going to find yourself following Satan. Who actually intends harm. Who actually fits the category of all these things that I've said and far worse. God is for us. We don't have to go back to Genesis, um, but let's start with that as the root. Let's look at how he started the relationship, what he designed, and how much he wanted that to succeed, that he would warn us of the bad things that could happen if we took a different way. The times that I'm very weak, which I don't think I'm just being self-deprecating, I feel weak most of the time spiritually. I feel weak when I'm trying to share the gospel with somebody. I hesitate. I feel timid. I'm stuttering when I'm trying to talk to them about something simple and I'm afraid. And I hate to admit that, but it is true. I've had to wrestle with that for years and I, I don't feel like I have much courage. If we turn, we don't have to turn here, but if you turn to Joshua chapter 1, you'll see that's not the case with God. What God wants, yes, in this flesh, you can be rather cowardly with not very much strength at all. If you try to draw on just your own strength, this sinful, tainted flesh, you're not going to go far. But God has an infinite amount of courage and strength that He's willing to provide by just asking. Which, if that relationship was offered with anybody else, a friend comes, this will be your best friend if they come by and say, anything that you need, I got it. And they mean it. And anytime you ask, you get the thing that you need. You'd say, that's my best friend. God offers that. Story after story in 1 Samuel chapter 1, what some people may seem frivolous is, is Hannah. Some people may even think it's selfish. You're just worried about yourself. You know what? There are other people that are barren and they can't have children. Just move along and forget about it. And you know what? Sometimes that prayer doesn't get answered in the way that people want. But in that story in the midst of all the other suffering that Hannah is going through, not only 
does God offer her a child, but He offers her a child that will be a great prophet and attempt to help the children of Israel who oftentimes don't want very much help. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, in the story of David and Bathsheba, David, this is, this is one of them that can be puzzling because we still remember David as a man after God's own heart and he's somebody who had a closer relationship. Or you would think it's a closer relationship just based on how much story you get. And then David becomes an adulterer and a murderer. Murders more than one person actually by his orders. And, and God sends a prophet and tells him a story and allows David to be redeemed. Not without consequences, but still redemption. You can't have it both ways. It can't be God offering all of this mercy and second and third and so many other chances, but He also just wants to strike you down at one moment. That's just not true. We don't have time to talk about Manasseh, and I think we talked about him enough yesterday. Manasseh is one of the worst people that ever existed on the planet. That's what the story reads to me. And, and when he cried out to God, it was in a situation where, of course, you would cry out to God. Your whole life is over. You have nothing left to lose. You're in the biggest distress of your life, and then you call out to God. And God says, okay. And He's happy to have you back. And we talked about the thief, and we skipped tonight talking about Peter. Peter, I mean, Peter was supposed to be one of his best friends. I mean, I don't think God shows partiality, but you know, in Peter's mind, Peter's supposed to be one of his best friends and betrays him with cursing and swearing. I don't know that guy because he didn't want to be crucified like Jesus. If you believe all of those stories, then the next step, and, and the final one tonight is the question, then how do I draw near to Him? Which is another thing that I think we'll be learning the rest of our lives. In James chapter 4... Starting in verse 7. <clears throat> God's Word says, Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. This, this idea of drawing near to God, do I, approaching His throne of grace with confidence, spending, living a life declaring to God the promise that you've offered. I want that and I believe and I know that you can deliver it. And even though I can't earn it, I'm going to live a life that that shows that's what I want more than anything. We talked about Moses. Understanding, if, if God tells me to draw near, I have to find a way to do it. Moses has to take the sandals off of his feet. But God says, I'm holy. So I have to understand there's this purity and separation where God is is greater than all of the other things that I see around me, including myself. And then, and Solomon makes this point in Ecclesiastes, what is one of the most important things in your whole life after you look out and you see everything else 
Without God is vanity, is to fear God. He says two things, fear God and keep His commandments. I do have to have this respect and this fear of just how awesome God is. That I will not develop in one day. It won't develop when I rise from the water. It's going to take the rest of my life to just understand why. And also to remind myself through Scripture and through other Christians and, and, and proper counsel, it's not that God is saying, I'm a scary monster that you're supposed to approach and you're supposed to be you know, trembling in the corner. And, and if He doesn't, it, if nowhere else you can understand that, He comes to us. We talked about that yesterday. Jesus comes to us. Very approachable. Very approachable. Just another human being. And not even a fancy human being. Not, not, not somebody I think Scripture says is you don't desire to look upon Him. And I don't know if it's actually just saying He's not a handsome man or you're just saying just His, his appearance is not imposing. It's not kingly. I, he's, he really is just the carpenter down the road. He's a nobody. So, so then the fear that God's talking about, it, it's not go, it, it couldn't be go hide in the corner because, and pardon me, but you know, little old Jesus, the common carpenter is coming. It's something else. It's something else about recognizing qualities about Him that are beyond worldly comprehension. We can understand it in Christ, but the world can't. And I think it's said best in two stories. I hope I'm not keeping us too long. One I'll make short. The last one is, is the most important to me. Isaiah chapter 6, which I think probably most, most everyone here is familiar with. This is important. This is important because I don't know how great of a man Isaiah was. I, I learned a, a few years ago that Isaiah spent approximately 40 years preaching to a very wicked people that didn't want to hear anything he had to say. And so if you stood, Isaiah, I said, who did I say? I mean Isaiah. Isaiah up here beside me. And you, you say, who's the righteous man? I'm going to look at Isaiah and I'm going to say, this man, he, he's awesome. He's like Jesus. And, and I don't actually feel very spiritual around Isaiah. And so Isaiah then, you would wonder... What would Isaiah be like in God's presence? And he gives us a good example. When he gets there in this, this vision or, or, or however he's actually there and, and he sees the seraphim in verse 2 and, and you just imagine how majestic they looked in this vision. And that, a lot of people, there they are. You know, we talk about how majestic angels must be or something. And, and Isaiah sees them in a way that we don't. And there was probably even an urge there to worship them based on their appearance, and then we're directed. What are the seraphim directing us? Who are they directing us to? It's holy as God. And it's not just holy once. It's holy, 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 which if I understand it correctly, is this the holiest? That's what it means. This is who you've been looking for. And then I get a little nervous because Isaiah's worried about it. Isaiah basically says, I'm destroyed. Woe is me, I am ruined. And there's something about that, that even though we know the conclusion of the story, there's something about that kind of recognition of how pure God is. Isaiah recognizes, I'm not even a portion of that. Now, of course, God gives us 
some of his holiness. But Isaiah recognizes, I can't be anywhere near him. I'm sin. I can't bring sin in. And what does it take? It doesn't take Isaiah's confidence on his own to stand up with his chest out and say, you know what? I'm confident before God. It takes God telling him, you can stand in my presence. It takes God saying, I've purified you. And, and so then he's, he's okay. So there's that element of it. And then finally, this other story, which I, I'm, I'm trying to work on. It's in, it's in Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 9 is the story of a woman who I think, just like us, questions her relationship with Jesus, questions just exactly who He is, doesn't know how He would feel. Maybe she doesn't want to bother Him because He's God. He's got so many things going on. Why would He be concerned about little old you? So in Matthew chapter 9... It's real short. Verse 20. A woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. I watched a show recently called The Chosen, which I'm not, I'm not promoting, you know, I don't know what if there's doctrine behind it. The episodes I've seen, it usually just tells the story of Jesus. And, and you kind of get more of these reactions. I'm, I'm like, I wonder if Jesus did act like that. But this woman, I had never thought about how awful this must have been. For 12 years. How weak and sick and an outcast she must have been. And how rejected she felt by everybody to the point. I don't know all of what's behind this in her heart. But her thought is, if I could, if I could just touch his garment. And I feel like there's some element of that where she doesn't want to bother Jesus. I'll go up and ask him and stop him from doing the important things that he's doing. If I can just go up and just graze that garment, I know He can heal me. And what I, what I love in this short story is Jesus' response. It's not He feels that and He just keeps walking because He's got something important to do. It turns around and makes her the very focus. And He will do that. Even when you, you question how much He loves you, He will find ways to remind you, I care about you. More than anything. And turns around and looks at her and says, Daughter, <laughs> and do you even need to hear the rest of it? She's reminded, you're one of my children. Take courage. Your faith has made you well. I, I hear these stories of these people and I want to get more like that when I think about how am I going to approach God? How am I going to even come to Him in prayer? Am I going to take a moment before I pray not saying you have to do this every time. And just recognize who it is that I'm, I'm bowing down to. And just recognize who it is that I'm making a request and thanking. And not just, He's terrifying and powerful, but He's Jesus. And, he will, and He's looking at me. And He's reminding me, you're my son. You're my daughter. I want to hear what you have to say. I care about what you're going through. And tonight, that, that's the Jesus that's presented to us. That's who we're drawing near to. And I hope that tonight, if you've never drawn near to Him, that maybe, maybe you're more convinced. Maybe even to the point that you are ready to repent and confess and be baptized to have your sins washed away and continue that walk with Him.
Maybe you've already done that. Maybe you've walked away and maybe it's because the world has convinced you that He's bad. But Jesus is is everything. He is the kindest, most compassionate God. And He's always existed and He's always loved us. Tonight, if you have any need, we ask you to come forward as we stand and sing.